You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. And good morning to everybody. Hey, it is good to see everybody here today. So glad that you made an effort not only to come to church, it looks like you may have had to make an effort to find a seat. But we're so glad that you made that effort to be here with us today. We are uh, continuing on in this series, uh, Luke's Settled Truth for Unsettled Times. And uh, Luke is a, a doctor who received Jesus after he had died and resurrected and ascended to the Father. He came to Christ through Apostle Paul's ministry. So he has a lot of unique uh, insights regarding Jesus' ministry. And so today what we're going to be examining is his emphasis on what we call divine healing. So if you would stand for the reading of the word, we're going to read one of his accounts regarding healing that actually has two stories of healing inside of it. So Luke chapter 8, verse 40 through 48, let's read together. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. The Holy Spirit, as we look at the word today, we always ask that you would open our minds and hearts to have an understanding of not only what the story initially means to us, but we pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal spiritual truths to us. And that they would not only fill our our mind, but God, they would touch our heart. And they would change our responses and reactions as we live this thing called life. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. You can be seated. So, we're looking at this topic of divine healing today, and it's not any surprise because it should. Uh, uh, Luke, being a doctor, he would have been fascinated with the miracles and the healings that Jesus did, and so that's why if you take a, the time to look through some of these, you'll notice that Luke sometimes uh, emphasizes uh, healing, a story that some of the other writers of the gospel, uh, the other three gospels, don't emphasize. He also tells a story or two that they don't mention, but the healings that Luke selected. I'm going to show you in just a second. We're going to show a lot of them very quickly. You'll notice 
that the ones that he selected for his gospel are the most difficult ones from his perspective as a doctor. If you'll take note, they're all considered as a doctor in his day uncurable. He would have said, as a doctor, we can't help you. You're just going to have to learn how to live and cope with what's wrong with you. So again, it's no surprise that when he heard what Jesus was doing, he would be fascinated as a doctor because he would have been saying this. I was accustomed to telling those people, you have no hope. You just have to adapt. You just have to cope. Nothing's going to change. So let me just kind of highlight some of these. And these aren't all of them. By the way, let's back it up. We know that he would have found uh, uh, conception of having a child under the circumstances very unique. So in, in Luke 1, we read that uh, uh, John the Baptist's parents were told that they were childless and they were not going to be able to have children and then suddenly they were able to have a child. Fascinating to him as a doctor, like nobody intervened and it just happened. And of course, the story of Jesus and Mary, you know, her miraculous conception before uh, coming together with Joseph in a marriage, he would have found that fascinating. So if you realize this, you look at Luke 1 and 2, he is just talking about uh, two, two people who were born in, under miraculous circumstances. He would have just thought that was incredible. That's one of the reasons he's so detailed in the stories. Because as a doctor, he's just wrapped up in that. Then we come to other places. Luke chapter 4, he talks about a delivered man uh, who uh, delivered a man, Jesus delivered a man who was demon-possessed. In, again, in Luke 4, he, it says that he healed many people. Now, you got to understand, Luke is a doctor. On a good day, he might heal two people, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And here's Jesus just cranking out one day, just healings after, you know, Luke would have gone, I could only dream that I could have done that. Because even then, like I said, a good day for him would have been two. One, you know, but his ability to see what Jesus was doing, fascinating. We read that he healed a man with leprosy in Luke 5. We read in Luke 5 again that he healed and he gave the statement that Jesus said, your sins are forgiven and a man who was paralyzed. In their particular day, they would have said, there's no way God's going to back this and let this guy walk because he just committed heresy by saying it. And yet the man got up and he walked. Then we read in, in Luke 6 that he says a man was healed with a shriveled right hand. What I want you to take note is this. He does not say that a man was healed of a shriveled hand. What does he say? It was a man who was healed of a shriveled what? Yeah, so Luke being a doctor, it's like, I don't want, no, he just wasn't healed. It was the guy's right arm. I mean, I saw that arm. I talked to him. I, I spoke with him. I saw the limb that Jesus healed. Then he talks about how Jesus healed a Roman centurion servant. You see, in that day, Rome was the occupying army. If somebody got sick in the Roman army, some people would say that God was answering prayer. I mean, you, know, you want your occupiers to get sick and get out of here. And instead, we see that Jesus' ministry was even for those who were occupying, which stretches us because, God, you shouldn't do that. They're mean people. Didn't Jesus say, do good to your enemies? Yeah, I noticed the resonant amens this morning. You know, we, we just go, no, we would, that's just unacceptable that God would want to do good for an occupying army that we don't want here. And yet, Jesus says, well, not only will I do it, I'm going to do it for one of the leaders. I'm going to do it for the man who actually makes the calls that causes a lot of the troubles for you. I'm going to heal in that. I'm going to bring healing to that household. Then we read that he raised the widow's son from the dead. 
In Luke 7, it says he healed people with diseases and sicknesses and evil spirits. And the word there is also pluralized in the text. It says blindnesses. It wasn't just one person. It was a bunch. And then we read in Luke 9 that he healed a demon-possessed boy. And what I want you to see, these were all cases where Luke, as a doctor, would have said, can't help you. And yet, Jesus was tackling the entire medical profession's uh, obstacles that these are people who cannot be helped. And Jesus said, I can help them all. And he did. So it stood out to Luke. It was a great thing. So what I want to show you, I'm going to take a little side trip here into the text and to some other passages all the way back to the Old Testament because what I want you to see is healing is a major theme in the scriptures. And it's permeated through all. And it all started all the way back in Exodus when God revealed himself to the Israelites after they left Egypt. He revealed himself as the one, he says, the God who heals. And I'm going to give you the text for that because it was in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of these diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And that's that phrase, I am the Lord who heals you, which comes from the Hebrew word, Yehovah Rapha. Okay, now, for simplistic sakes, a lot of times you'll hear in our language, Jehovah, which is fine. You can say it that way, too. But what we're not aware of is what that word encompasses. We just say the God who heals. But if you go into the Hebrew and do a little background, you find this. Sure, it also means the healer and physician of men, but it also means to heal individual distresses. So what we're reading here is this, is God just can't heal my, God can not only heal my body, he can heal the things that mess with my mind. Which would explain his ability to go to people that were considered demon possessed and be able to, and these evil spirits that would torment, that he could also not just heal them physically, he could speak to those things and say, you are free. Wow. So God is just not a one-dimensional God. He, he can not only touch my, my physical body, he can touch my emotions and my mental state. Wow. But that word also encompasses to heal the hurts of nations, uh, to, to heal hurts of nations involving restored faith, or including, I should say, restored favor. So that word, like I said, is very broad. And you read about this in Chronicles where it says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Remember that? And it says, they, and he will heal their land. He's saying, I am Jehovah Rapha. So this is incredible that God can heal a person physically, that a God can heal a person mentally, emotionally, and God says, I can also heal a nation. Now, why is that important to us? Because even just, let's just say, let's just go to the last part of that. How many would definitely agree our nation could use a great healing right now. Okay, so we need to call on Jehovah Rapha because, listen, he revealed himself to the people of Israel, the Israelites, when they left Egypt. He revealed himself that way. Because why? Because they were a group of people who were, be, who were coming and trying to form as a nation, but they were all former slaves. They needed a lot of healing. And God says, I can heal you. I can not only heal your bodies, I can heal you as a group of people to make you into something. And God says that healing also includes you'll have favor as a nation. Wow. 
So, let's begin to unpack this story that we read in the Gospel of Luke. It's, a, it's one story that has two miracles in it. We're going to touch on both of these. Now, let me just say this. With all the stories that Luke tells on healing, please understand that what I'm telling you today is not the all-encompassing uh, principles of healing. With every story that Luke recorded, he revealed another dimension of principles as it relates to healing. So I'm only addressing the principles that are related to this story. There's more, but you, we'd have to preach every miracle. You know, with me, okay? So let's just look at this one, and what does it tell us? So number one, read this out loud. Jesus healed her he healed her physically. That's not, the, that's not so surprising because that's the emphasis of the story. But it says a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. I think it's interesting that Luke makes sure he records that because as a doctor, he would have known what that's like. Probably no more frust most frustrating thing for a doctor to tell anybody is, I can't help you. And I don't know anybody who can says, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. So what I want you to notice in the story is not only that Jesus healed her, we need to get a mental picture so that we can better understand what exactly happened. I know there's some artist rendition where it shows that this woman is on the ground, and, and she's, you know, she's, she's face down in the dirt, and she's trying to grab Jesus' garment. And I understand the artist's desire to make a dramatic picture, but because of how this was working, and Jesus was on the move in the crowd, she would have been crouched low to the ground, but still on her feet. So she would have been down. Because number one was this. If anybody recognizes her, they're going to start throwing rocks at her. She's considered unclean in her day, and it was very important in their mindset to keep a distance between you and the other person. And the way you did that was, number one, you put the responsibility to stay away on the unclean person. When they violated the distance rule, you were authorized to use rocks to communicate your displeasure at the distance being closed down. They would call it stoning. So she's close to the ground, and she's sneaking up behind Jesus to get, a, to get the ability to touch his garment. But what I want you to notice in the story is this. She's having to eat everybody else's dirt and dust that they're kicking up. It's not a clean miracle. It may, you know, we, we make it... Uh, we make it easy sometimes to pray for people here. You know, we got the music and we call people forward and you have the ability. But this woman didn't have that environment. Her challenge was to overcome the dirt and the dust that everybody else was kicking up so that she could get a miracle. This is so representative of people today. There are so many obstacles that are between them and Jesus. And you know what? That doesn't give you an excuse to say, then it's not for me. I'm sorry you have more challenges, but that's not a reason to quit. There are people in this, in this building who have more difficult stories than other people, but the difficulty is not an excuse to say, well, then it doesn't apply to me. No. Everybody has something that they have to overcome. You know, one of the things I, I, now some of you already know a little bit about my story about myself. I'm a pastor. I grew up a preacher's kid. And the only reason we always got blamed for stuff was is because the deacon's kids corrupted us. <laughs> it's all in who gets to tell the story. <laughs> but 
But no, you, you know, you go through, hey, I, this stuff is not for me. You learn things about people as a pastor's kid. You wish you'd never learn. You, you see things that how people respond sometimes to your parents. And, and you just, as a kid, you know, you just, you're just not able to sometimes handle all that. And so you get into this passive-aggressive mentality mindset. When I'm 18, I'm out of here. Now, I'm not going to announce that to anybody because if I announce that I'm doing that, they'll head me off. So I'm just going to, you know, you just get into this mindset. And I remember the day that it just hit me. Why does it, where did it ever come to my brain? When did I ever accept that I'll show you, I'll send myself to hell, and then you'll feel bad? That's not a brilliant choice. That's not a brilliant decision. But you know, how many, you know how many young people, you know how many church kids make that call? I'll show you. I'll trash my life. Okay. You sure that's a good idea? Why, why would you throw your soul away over somebody that you got offended about? I don't think that's a, I think that's the con, I think that's the con the enemy sells, especially when we're younger. Yeah, you, you know how to get even? Throw your life away. That'll make them feel bad. Yeah, but you realize you're going to feel worse? Maybe not a good decision, good choice. And so a lot of times you just have to, listen, you don't get to fix and resolve all that. You just got to let it go. Because like her, she wasn't even sure who the dirt belonged to. Well, who kicked that up? Who, there's, there's so many people. Whose response? There, there comes a point in time you just go, i got to let all this go. And move on with my life. And stop looking for a blame game. And stop pointing, you know what? I need Jesus in spite of all the dirt and the dust that's getting kicked up and everything that's associated with it. I need Jesus and I'm going in. That's it. I'm serving God I don't care how difficult they make it, I'm serving Christ. It's what Joshua did. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, period. So number two, I want you to recognize this, what Jesus did. Say it out loud. Jesus healed her. Part of her challenge was this, was not only did she not have a relationship with God, but she was disconnected socially, being who she was. She was an outcast. She was not allowed to get around people. And says, the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. If, right there, if that story ended, it would have, it, if, if the story had not continued, this is where the stoning would have happened. But it says, she told why she had touched him. How many know if she wants to breathe, she better, better explain that. And how she had been instantly healed. And it's just amazing that Jesus not only healed her, because you notice he said, he paused, he said, power is going out from me. And they said, look, everybody's touching you. I know, but I want to know. Why was that important? Because Jesus was pausing to recognize that her healing was not complete. Because even though she had physically been healed, she socially had not been healed. She had no network. These people still were going to treat her as an outcast. And so he paused to get her to come inside the circle that had been denied her for 12 years. Jesus brought her into a circle that no one let her have for 12 years. And he brought her in. 
healing number two. Because what's one of the worst punishments we give people? So we call it isolation. We not only put them, they may not only be incarcerated, but if they become incorrigible and still unmanageable, the worst thing you can do to a person is put them in uh, solitary confinement. So God, not, so Jesus here not only heals her physically, he restores her socially. And get this, everybody read the third one. Jesus healed her. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. It's a very interesting way that Jesus said that. Jesus didn't say, I healed you. He says, your faith has healed you. Why did Jesus say it that way? Because it would have been true if Jesus said, I healed you, right? I mean, that's true. Why did he give credit to her faith? Again, let's go back. For 12 years, she's never been able to set foot in the temple. The very place where she was told that God lived, she was told that she was not welcome. Now, after 12 years, I don't care how committed, how strong you are in the Lord, you can't tell me that on the backside of 12 years, you're stronger than you were at the beginning of 12. Because you've also been cut off socially. So you have no social life, you, you have no connection group, you have nothing, and you can't even go to the house of God. They have guards who are keeping you out. But somehow this woman had enough faith to believe that if that man is who he says he is, if that's who he really is, if I touch him, it changes my world. And what we see here was Jesus was telling her, your faith healed you because after 12 years, you never gave up. People stopped looking for you, but you never stopped looking for God. In one miracle, Jesus fixed three problems inside this lady. He healed her physically, he healed her socially, and he commended that she kept her faith. That while people weren't looking for her, God was still looking for her. And she knew what the response needed to be. If that man is God in flesh, my world changes if I touch him. Because nobody can touch God and stay the same way. And that's why Jesus said it was your faith. Because, it, it, listen, Jesus did not go to her. She went to him. Which takes me to the next story, which flips every one of these principles back around the other direction. Which goes to show you there's a discernment factor in healing. Number four, read this out loud. The need for... The need for divine healing can lead to a new spiritual dimension with Jesus. The, then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, this is crucial, a synagogue leader. So this is not a guy who would have been warm to Jesus proclaiming that he was the son of God. This would have been, we got we to gotta keep our distance here because this guy could really cause us trouble but came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because only his daughter, his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So there's a little bit of background that you need to be aware of backing up into the, into the book of Luke. It says that Jesus was in Capernaum, and while he was in the synagogue, there was a demon-possessed man who manifested and Jesus delivered the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. 
Now, who's in charge of the synagogue? Jairus. How's that for an awkward moment of your leadership? How does a demon-possessed person make the synagogue their home and can actually feel good about it? But Jesus coming, there's this manifestation. So we don't read about there, there's this magnificent embracing by Jairus after that. It's just kind of like, how many know when there's crickets, that's an answer? It's just crickets. And then all of a sudden, Jairus has a crisis. This 12-year-old girl's dying. And it's real easy for Jairus. If he can, if I watch that man set a demon-possessed man free in my synagogue. If he can do that, he can save my daughter. And it says he came and he put himself at Jesus' feet. We do not read that Jairus ever invited Jesus to his house until the crisis happened. And all of a sudden now Jesus is welcome. Crises have a way of opening people's hearts and minds to the activity of God where before they would have shut it down. But you let some things begin to happen in their life and all of a sudden they're all in. They're there. And I don't think it's right for us to be manipulative. I think it's right for us to recognize what's going on and be responsible and be, and be uh, authentic in our response to what is going on. But I'm just here to tell you, in the crises of life, what you'll find is this. People's hearts open up. They never shut down. They open up. All of a sudden, they're starting to say, if there is such a thing as a miracle, I sure could use one right now because somebody's told me there's no hope in my circumstance. The pain and the suffering is too great. I don't even know if we can go through the process of what the medical field tells us. We got to, I need Jesus. All of a sudden, when it happens to them, the need for divine healing can open the dimension. And so we go to number five, read it out loud. Death, death is in a transition to an eternal spiritual state. I put this in, I'm going to tell you, late. Usually I get everything ready, then I'm working on memorizing everything. And I threw this in late because it came to, my, it came to me. If I don't talk about this, I know you. My text and my emails are going to load up with, is there a reason that you avoided Jesus' statement that she didn't die, that she was asleep, and so was she really dead? Was she resurrected from the dead? Or did Jesus figure out a way to wake, just wake her up? I knew that was coming, and I thought, you know, if I'm going to have all these texts and emails, why don't I just go ahead and stick, stick this in there? And then I can alleviate all those analytical minds out there. So, let's unpack this so you understand. It says, meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. So it almost, on the surface, sounds like Jesus is saying, you guys are a total misread. She didn't die. She's just asleep. And I mean classified dead the way that we do. It almost, and so what I want to show you is this. For followers of Christ, death is a sleep into another state of spirituality. I will show you other scriptures on how this applies. So let's jump to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 52. This is Paul. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. 
We will, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. It's talking about the, the, the rapture here. So this is talking about that not everybody has to die to go into eternity. This is talking about when he comes back and he raptures the church out. And it says those who have fallen asleep will be raised from the dead. Y'all see that? This is some people's great hope because everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Just let that process a little bit. You'll get it. We make this statement, I want to go to heaven. Well, so you want to die? Oh, no, I don't want to die. And you're just like, well, I don't know. How, how are you going to get That doesn't mean we accelerate the process. Okay, but here we read that it, death is considered a transition. He goes into this even further in 1 Thessalonians 4 where he says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. You see that phrase? So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. Oh, we grieve, but we grieve differently. Why? We don't grieve because our, our mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So when a follower of Christ dies, it is considered a sleep because it's the body that died, but the spirit lives on. It's a transition. So Jesus is acknowledging in this particular context, I know what's happened to her body, but you got to understand, she's still here. She's still there. Okay, you're treating this like she's already crossed over. And Jesus said, for us as followers, she's asleep and I'm going to wake her up and bring her back. Another way, so it was years ago when I was pastoring in Indiana, one of the, one of the men of our church, great guy, his name was Joe. And I've shared this before. But Joe had been diagnosed with cancer. And the treatment that they wanted to give him at that time was severe. And they said, even if it's effective in doing the cancer, the treatment itself could kill you. So that it was a very small percentage for him, to, or a, a, a small percent that it would even be effective. So he had determined that he was not going to go through with it. He was at peace with it. He said, this is it. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not going to do that. So I went to see him. And one of the things that I said to him was, you know, how are you handling this? Uh, and then I said, how do I pray for you, Joe? And this is what he said. And these are, these are words that, you know, you go, as a pastor, I should have said that. <laughs> he said, just pray for God to be with me as I transition because there's really only two options here. Either God's going to heal me and send me home or God's not going to heal me and he's going to take me home. He said, either way, I'm going home. I just don't know which one. And as a pastor, I went, I should have known that. I mean, I knew it. I just didn't have the phrase, you know. It's like, I wish I had this massive concept and go, oh, man, that's it right there. As followers of Christ, we go home or we go home. It's a transition for us. And I say that to everyone in this room. That doesn't mean that we don't try to do the best we can to survive in this life because many times we have people who are counting on us. And, you know, we, we want to be there for our families as they grow. So this is not like, hey, my exit ramp is here early. I'm, I'm, you know, no, 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 no. We need, we sometimes 
go through things to survive in this life as long as we can. Not because we're not sure about our eternity, but we have people in this life who still want our input and still want our impact. Stop making it all about you. You do it for them. And everybody say amen. amen. Number six, read it out loud. In his mercy, Jesus comes to people who can't come to him. And he touches people who can't touch him. This is totally the opposite of what the woman who touched him. She had to come to Jesus. She had to work her way through the people. She had to get through all the dirt and the grime and the dust to touch Jesus. But here's a situation. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Number one, I want you to see this. Jairus' daughter couldn't come to him because she was dead. And Jesus said, that's no problem. If she can't come to me, I'll come to her. And then when he gets there, Jer her, his, his daughter, Jairus' daughter, she can't even reach her hand out. Why? She's dead. Jesus said, that's not a problem. If she can't touch me, I'll touch her. This ought to give everybody in this room hope with a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife or a friend who's so far away from God. Sometimes they have positioned their lives where they're not even looking to reach out to Jesus. That's all right. We serve a Jesus who says, just tell me where they are. I'll go reach out. I love it. C.S. Lewis, great Christian author. He's got a lot of great material, but one of, his, one of his books, he introduces the concept of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, and, he's taught, and he uses the concept, the hound of heaven, that once the hound of heaven gets your scent, why don't you just give it up? That dog is not quitting. And I've used that so many times I've, I, in prayer for somebody. I say, God, just get the hound of heaven, grab their scent, and get after them. Not that you're going to destroy them, but I want the hound. What, what, is, what does a hound do when he finds the It pins him to the ground, right? The dog straddles the perpetrator and is right there. And what is the perpetrator? I give up, I give up, I give up. And I'm like, please, dog, please, God, send the hound of heaven after him. Pin him. Pin him up in a tree. Pin him against a tree. Pin him to the ground. Go get him. You're not going to do it to destroy them. You're going to do it to give them a face-to-face -face encounter. God, listen to me. We've all had the situations in our life where you've done everything you know to do, and inside you say, God, where are you? I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm in my connection group. I'm connecting with people. But i got to tell you, when I reach up my hand and I swipe it towards heaven and I try to grab something, it feels like I just grab air and I come and I know you're there. Why can't I grab you? And can I tell you, change your prayer. God, grab me. Because I can't grab you. And if you can go to Jairus' daughter and grab her hand, you can come to where I'm at and you can grab mine. But right now, I don't know where to grab. I'm, I'm reaching. I'm doing everything I know to do, but I don't feel you. Please, God, find me and grab my hand. He will. He will. I trust, trust me, he will. Last point is this. Read it out loud. The miraculous, it doesn't relieve us. The miraculous does not relieve us of daily needs and responsibility. This is a crazy 
conclusion to the story. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Now, you would have thought they would have had some type of revival. I mean, you know, a dead person can sort of change the environment, right? What does Jesus say? Jesus told them, give her something to eat. I mean, it's almost like, well, way to kill the holy moment, Jesus. I mean, you created the holy moment, and then, wow, they've been raised from the dead. Praise God. Let's go grab something to eat. I mean, you just feel like, hey, shouldn't we like sing, dance, celebrate? You know, I mean, boy, pastor really put the kibosh on that one, boy. He just shot it down. A great holy moment. And he wants to go grab a bite to eat. What you see here is this. We sometimes utilize the miraculous in ways that God never intended. He's trying to get us back into life. You know, he also talks, there's a, in the Gospel of John, we have a story of Lazarus. And his, he had been dead for three days, and he's raised, or, or four days, and he's been raised from the dead. And his sisters plead with Jesus, and he, and he performs that miracle. But here's the thing. After Lazarus was raised from the dead, you know, the next week, I'm sure his sister said, it's your turn to take out the trash, Lazarus. <laughs> and I'm sure Lazarus went, hey, you know, I just got back from the dead. You know, I kind of feel like, you know, that's beneath who I am right now. People are seeing me still ooing and aahing, you know. I just don't, and I know I'm embellishing a little bit, but hey, it's your turn to cut the grass. You know, sometimes we, if we're not careful, we use the miraculous to take ourselves out of the normalcy of life that God says, the normalcy of life is a gift to you, and I was given that back. The normalcy of life was not a, pun a punishment, it was a gift. And I, I, put you, I put you back in the normalcy as a gift. Because sometimes you don't know what you have until you lose it. Sometimes we go, oh, my life is so boring, blah, blah, blah. And then something happens and then you're, what are you praying? Oh, God, give me back my boring life. I've had enough of this. I've, you know, I just, I'm, I don't, I don't want it. I don't want all this excitement and all this drama. Please just give me back my boring life that I once complained about. And I'll never complain again. As I wrap this up, can I tell you why a lot of churches don't preach on divine healing? I'm not saying this to elevate this church, me, that we do, and others don't. I just, but I can tell you authentically why churches avoid preaching on divine healing. And it's this. What if we pray and nothing happens? Feel like I misled the people. My response to that has always been this. Well, if you don't take the credit for healing, then you don't have to take the blame when he doesn't. Because the implication of making that type of statement is we somewhat get credit for the healing. But that means if he doesn't heal, now I have to take the blame. Well, if you wouldn't take the credit, then you don't have to take the blame. My job as a pastor is merely to give God an opportunity. Because he's working so... You, you go through the Gospel of Matthew, he had so many different ways because God was doing more than just healing a person. He was many times restoring a person or doing something else. 
And it's really difficult in the Gospel of Luke to find, quote, the pattern that Jesus did. He did it so many different ways in so many places. And in essence, what you find is this. Jesus was not afraid to pray for anybody anywhere, anytime. He never said, hey, you know, I'm speaking at the synagogue in Capernaum tonight. Be there at 7 o'clock and I'll, I'll be praying for the sick. Jesus was not afraid to go. Let's pray right now. Let's do it here. I don't think I've ever shared, I shared this in the first service and realized I had never shared this publicly before. So I'm going to share it here because if you talk to somebody in the first service and then I don't tell you and then you're going to send me emails and text one and oh, I didn't tell you. I don't want to start that. So it's probably uh, four or five years ago. I got in, I had some severe back spasms. Some of the leadership team knows this. I had some back spasms and they were lower and uh, the, they were severe to the point that when they hit, it was like somebody punched me in the gut. You know how you, you get the wind knocked out of you? And for like 10 seconds, I'm just going, I could keep a good face, but I'm just waiting for the thing to pass. And I had this, and it started, create, it started creating a fear in my brain. Because I was like, what, is this, what, is, what if this happens on Sunday when I'm speaking? Talk about an embarrassing moment. You know, it looks like pastor's having a holy moment. No, I'm having a spasm. And I can't say anything. I could, you know, it's just like, it's like I paused for 10 seconds while this thing passed. And man, I was just so frustrated. So one day, it was me, and I, I'm going to protect his identity because I, I, I just don't want to draw attention to the person. But, um, and he, I think, would agree with that. The guy in our church, we, he, we had an appointment. We were meeting at Longhorn. And I'd gotten there just a few minutes ahead of him, was waiting in the booth. He come, and right when he got there, you know, I'm having like a 10-second episode. And he said, are you doing all right? I said, man, this is so frustrating. And I said, you know, I don't know what happened. I don't know what causes it. And I certainly don't want to get into the muscle relaxers. You know, that would put me in la-la land. And I said, it's just, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's messing with my head. I'm scared that it's going to happen on a Sunday morning. And I don't want to embarrass myself. And he said, he said, Pastor, can I pray for you? I said, absolutely. He did something I was not prepared for. We were in a booth. I, I could take you to Longhorn. I could take, if you, if, when you go in the door, you take a right, you go straight ahead. It was the second booth on the left. He said, can I pray for you? I said, absolutely. He got out of his side of the booth. He came to my side. He grabbed my legs and spun them. And had him pointing out in the aisle. And he got down on his knees and he prayed for me. In front of everybody. God healed me. God healed me. You know, he... He didn't go, well, have you, have you asked the elders to lay hands on you? Has the pastoral team laid hands on you? He just, he just, he just did that. I don't, even think, I don't even think he thought two, two cents about it. Then he got back down in his booth and says, well, all right, what are we having for lunch? <laughs> no, it's not like I knew it had happened, but it was from that point on, they began to subside and diminish from that point on. The, 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 the pendulum started going the other way. So it's not like there was this holy moment there. You know, you, I was just kind of like, wow, this just like really happened in Longhorn. <laughs> Here. <laughs> and then things began to improve. And I haven't had those now for years. And I say that 
You notice Jesus always prayed for people at the moment the crisis happened. I'll be, I'll be praying for you, crickets. Like, hey, can I pray for you right here, right now? Have the courage that if God brought somebody to your life who is in crisis, say, look, man, I'm not going to do this and try to have some kind of dramatic display. Look, really, can we, can we just like step over here? I'll pray for you. I mean, I, I sincerely will. And I believe God can change the momentum of this here now. I'm not praying. I mean, I mean, I will be praying for you after you leave. Hello. <laughs> so what are you telling me, God? We're done? <laughs> but no, it's just... like that woman. Jesus said, your faith healed you. The fact that you had that much boldness to do it here, to do it now, with everything around, with all the obstacles, Jesus said, that faith moves mountains. Have the courage to believe God that you are not only an, uh, an ability to re be a recipient of his healing. Listen to me. You can be a vessel. You're somebody's miracle if you'll stick your neck out. You're the miracle that God wants to use. And everybody said amen. amen. Come on, let's everybody stand to our feet this morning. Would you do that? Would you just take a moment right now and lift your hands? And I want you to praise him that he's the God who heals. Come on, man. He's the God who heals the body. He's the God who heals the mind and emotions. He's the God who heals nations. And let's favor come back to the gym. Come on, he's the all-encompassing God of healing for us today. Come on, lift your voice right now.